Part One of Howard Pyle's Book of Pirates. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Epistomolus. Howard Pyle's Book of Pirates, compiled by Merle Johnson. Chapter One Buccaneers and Marooners of the Spanish Main. Just above the northwestern shore of the old island of Hispaniola, the Santo Domingo of our day, and separated from it only by a narrow channel of some five or six miles in width, lies a queer little hunch of an island, known, because of its distant resemblance to that animal, as the Tortuga del Mar, or Sea Turtle. It is not more than twenty miles in length, by perhaps seven or eight in breadth. It is only a little spot of land and as you look at it upon the map a pin's head would almost cover it. Yet from that spot, as from a center of inflammation, a burning fire of human wickedness and ruthlessness and lust overran the world, and spread terror and death throughout the Spanish West Indies, from St. Augustine to the island of Trinidad, and from Panama to the coasts of Peru. About the middle of the seventeenth century certain French adventurers set out from the fortified island of St. Christopher in longboats and hoys, directing their course to the westward, there to discover new islands. Sighting Hispaniola with abundance of joy, they landed and went into the country, where they found great quantities of wild cattle, horses, and swine. Now vessels on the return voyage to Europe from the West Indies needed revitalizing and food, especially flesh, was at a premium in the islands of the Spanish main, wherefore a great profit was to be turned in preserving beef and pork, and selling the flesh to homeward-bound vessels. The northwestern shore of Hispaniola, lying as it does at the eastern outlet of the old Bahama Channel, running between the island of Cuba and the great Bahama banks, lay almost in the very main stream of travel. The pioneer Frenchmen were not slow to discover the double advantage to be reaped from the wild cattle that cost them nothing to procure, and a market for the flesh ready found for them. So down upon Hispaniola they came by boatloads and shiploads, gathering like a swarm of mosquitoes, and overrunning the whole western end of the island. There they established themselves, spending the time alternately in hunting the wild cattle and buccanning the meat and squandering their hardly earned gains in wild debauchery, the opportunities for which were never lacking in the Spanish West Indies. Footnote 1. Buccanning, by which the buccaneers gained their name, was a process of curing thin strips of meat by salting, smoking, and drying in the sun. At first the Spaniards thought nothing of the few travel-worn Frenchmen who dragged their longboats and hoys up on the beach, and shot a wild bullock or two to keep body and soul together. But when the few grew to dozens, and the dozens to scores, and the scores to hundreds, it was a very different matter, and wrathful grumblings and mutterings began to be heard among the original settlers. But of this the careless buccaneers thought never a whit. The only thing that troubled them being the lack of a more convenient shipping point than the main island afforded them. This lack was at last filled by a party of hunters who ventured across the narrow channel that separated the main island from Tortuga. Here they found exactly what they needed, a good harbor, just at the junction of the Windward Channel and the Old Bahama Channel, a spot where four-fifths of the Spanish-Indian trade would pass by their very wharves. 
There were a few Spaniards upon the island, but they were a quiet folk, and well disposed to make friends with the strangers. But when more Frenchmen and still more Frenchmen crossed the narrow channel, until they overran the Tortuga and turned it into one great curing-house for the beef which they shot upon the neighboring island, the Spaniards grew restive over the matter, just as they had done upon the larger island. Accordingly, one fine day there came half a dozen great boatloads of armed Spaniards, who landed upon the turtle's back and sent the Frenchmen flying to the woods and fastnesses of rock as the chaff flies before the thunder-gust. That night the Spaniards drank themselves mad and shouted themselves hoarse over their victory, while the beaten Frenchmen sullenly paddled their canoes back to the main island again, and the sea-turtle was Spanish once more. But the Spaniards were not contented with such a petty triumph as that of sweeping the island of Tortuga free from the obnoxious strangers. Down upon Hispaniola they came, flushed with their easy victory, and determined to root out every Frenchman until not one single buccaneer remained. For a time they had an easy thing of it, for each French hunter roamed the woods by himself, with no better company than his half-wild dogs so that when two or three Spaniards would meet such a one, he seldom if ever came out of the woods again, for even his resting place was lost. But the very success of the Spaniards brought their ruin along with it, for the buccaneers began to combine together for self-protection, and out of that combination arose a strange union of lawless man with lawless man, so near, so close, that it can scarce be compared to any other than that of husband and wife. When two entered upon this comradeship, articles were drawn up and signed by both parties, a common stock was made of all their possessions, and out into the woods they went to seek their fortunes. Thenceforth they were as one man. They lived together by day, they slept together by night. What one suffered, the other suffered. What one gained, the other gained. The only separation that came betwixt them was death, and then the survivor inherited all that the other left. And now it was another thing with Spanish buccaneer hunting, for two buccaneers, reckless of life, quick of eye, and true of aim, were worth any half-dozen of Spanish islanders. By and by, as the French became more strongly organized for mutual self-protection, they assumed the offensive. Then down they came upon Tortuga, and now it was the turn of the Spanish to be hunted off the island like vermin, and the turn of the French to shout their victory. Having firmly established themselves, a governor was sent to the French of Tortuga, one Monsieur Le Passeur, from the island of St. Christopher. The sea-turtle was fortified, and colonists, consisting of men of doubtful character, and women of whose character there could be no doubt whatever, began pouring in upon the island, for it was said that the buccaneers thought no more of a doubloon than of a lima bean, so that this was the place for the brothel and the brandy-shop to reap their golden harvest and the island remained French. Hitherto the Tortugans had been content to gain as much as possible from the homeward-bound vessels through the orderly channels of legitimate trade. It was reserved for Pierre le Grand to introduce piracy as a quicker and more easy road to wealth than the semi-honest exchange they had been used to practice. Gathering together eight-and-twenty other spirits as hardy and reckless as himself, he put boldly out to sea in a boat hardly large enough to hold his crew, and running down the windward channel and out into the Caribbean Sea, he lay in wait for such a prize as might be worth the risks of winning. For a while their luck was steadily against them, 
their provisions and water began to fail, and they saw nothing before them but starvation or a humiliating return. In this extremity they sighted a Spanish ship belonging to a flota, which had become separated from her consorts. The boat in which the buccaneers sailed might, perhaps, have served for the great ship's longboat. The Spaniards outnumbered them three to one, and Pierre and his men were armed only with pistols and cutlasses. Nevertheless, this was their one and their only chance, and they determined to take the Spanish ship or die in the attempt. Down upon the Spaniard they bore through the dusk of the night, and giving orders to the chirurgeon to scuttle their craft under them as they were leaving it, they swarmed up the side of the unsuspecting ship and upon its decks in a torrent, pistol in one hand and cutlass in the other. A part of them ran to the gun-room and secured the arms and ammunition, pistoling or cutting down all such as stood in their way or offered opposition. The other party burst into the great cabin at the heels of Pierre Le Grand, found the captain and a party of his friends at cards, set a pistol to his breast, and demanded him to deliver up the ship. Nothing remained for the Spaniard but to yield, for there was no alternative between surrender and death. And so the great prize was won. It was not long before the news of this great exploit and of the vast treasure gained reached the ears of the buccaneers of Tortuga and Hispaniola. Then what a hubbub and an uproar and a tumult there was! Hunting wild cattle and buccanning the meat was at a discount, and the one and only thing to do was to go a-pirating, for where one such prize had been won, others were to be had. In a short time freebooting assumed all of the routine of a regular business. Articles were drawn up betwixt captain and crew, compacts were sealed, and agreements entered into by the one party and the other. In all professions there are those who make their mark, those who succeed only moderately well, and those who fail more or less entirely. Nor did pirating differ from this general rule, for in it were men who rose to distinction, men whose names, something tarnished and rusted by the lapse of years, have come down even to us of the present day. Pierre-Francois, who with his boatload of six-and-twenty desperadoes ran boldly into the midst of the Pearl Fleet off the coast of South America, attacked the vice-admiral under the very guns of two men of war, captured his ship, though she was armed with eight guns and manned with threescore men, and would have got her safely away, only that having to put on sail their mainmast went by the board, whereupon the men of war came up with them, and the prize was lost. But even though there were two men of war against all that remained of six-and-twenty buccaneers, the Spaniards were glad enough to make terms with them for the surrender of the vessel, whereby Pierre-Francois and his men came off scot-free. Bartholomew Portuguese was a worthy of even more note. In a boat manned with thirty fellow-adventurers, he fell upon a great ship off Cape Corrientes, manned with threescore and ten men, all told. Her he assaulted again and again, beaten off with the very pressure of numbers, only to renew the assault, until the Spaniards who survived, some fifty in all, surrendered to twenty living pirates, who poured upon the decks like a score of blood-stained, powder-grimed devils. They lost their vessel by recapture, and Bartholomew Portuguese barely escaped with his life through a series of almost unbelievable adventures. But no sooner had he fairly escaped from the clutches of the Spaniards than— gathering together another band of adventurers, he fell upon the very same vessel in the gloom of the night, recaptured her when she rode at anchor in the harbor of Campeche under the guns of the fort, slipped the cable, and was away without the loss of a single man. He lost her in a hurricane soon afterward, just off the Isle of Pines, 
but the deed was none the less daring for all that. Another notable, no less famous than these two worthies, was Roch Brasiliano, the truculent Dutchman who came up from the coast of Brazil to the Spanish main with a name ready-made for him. Upon the very first adventure which he undertook, he captured a plate-ship of fabulous value and brought her safely into Jamaica, and when at last captured by the Spaniards, he fairly frightened them into letting him go by truculent threats of vengeance from his followers. Such were three of the pirate buccaneers who infested the Spanish main. There were hundreds no less desperate, no less reckless, no less insatiate in their lust for plunder than they. The effects of this freebooting soon became apparent. The risks to be assumed by the owners of the vessels and the shippers of merchandise became so enormous that Spanish commerce was practically swept away from these waters. No vessel dared to venture out of port excepting under escort of powerful men of war, and even then they were not always secure from molestation. Exports from Central and South America were sent to Europe by way of the Strait of Magellan, and little or none went through the passes between the Bahamas and the Caribbees. So at last buccaneering, as it had come to be generically called, ceased to pay the vast dividends that it had done at first. The cream was skimmed off, and only the very thin milk was left in the dish. Fabulous fortunes were no longer earned in a ten days' cruise, but what money was won hardly paid for the risks of the winning? There must be a new departure, or buccaneering would cease to exist. Then arose one who showed the buccaneers a new way to squeeze money out of the Spaniards. This man was an Englishman, Lewis Scott. The stoppage of commerce on the Spanish main had naturally tended to accumulate all the wealth gathered and produced into the chief fortified cities and towns of the West Indies. As there no longer existed prizes upon the sea, they must be gained upon the land, if they were to be gained at all. Lewis Scott was the first to appreciate this fact. Gathering together a large and powerful body of men as hungry for plunder and as desperate as himself, he descended upon the town of Campeche, which he captured and sacked, stripping it of everything that could possibly be carried away. When the town was cleared to the bare walls, Scott threatened to set the torch to every house in the place if it was not ransomed by a large sum of money which he demanded. With this booty he set sail for Tortuga, where he arrived safely, and the problem was solved. After him came one Mansfeld, a buccaneer of lesser note, who first made a descent upon the Isle of St. Catherine, now Old Providence, which he took and, with this as a base, made an unsuccessful descent upon Nueva Granada and Cartagena. His name might not have been handed down to us along with others of greater fame had he not been the master of that most apt of pupils, the great Captain Henry Morgan, most famous of all the buccaneers, one-time governor of Jamaica, and knighted by King Charles the Second. After, Mansfeld followed the bold John Davis, native of Jamaica, where he sucked in the lust of piracy with his mother's milk. With only fourscore men he swooped down upon the great city of Nicaragua, in the darkness of the night, silenced the sentry with the thrust of a knife, and then fell to pillaging the churches and houses without any respect or veneration. Of course it was but a short time until the whole town was in an uproar of alarm, and there was nothing left for the little handful of men to do but to make the best of their way to their boats. They were in the town but a short time, but in that time they were able to gather together and carry away money and jewels to the value of fifty thousand pieces of eight, besides dragging off with them a dozen or more notable prisoners whom they held for ransom. 
and now one appeared upon the scene who reached a far greater height than any had arisen to before. This was Francois Lolonoise, who sacked the great city of Maracaibo and the town of Gibraltar. Cold, unimpassioned, pitiless, his sluggish blood was never moved by one single pulse of human warmth. His icy heart was never touched by one ray of mercy or one spark of pity for the hapless wretches who chanced to fall into his bloody hands. Against him the governor of Havana sent out a great war-vessel, and with it a negro executioner, so that there might be no inconvenient delays of law after the pirates had been captured. But Lolonoise did not wait for the coming of the war-vessel. He went out to meet it, and he found it where it lay riding at anchor in the mouth of the river Estra. At the dawn of the morning he made his attack, sharp, unexpected, decisive. In a little while the Spaniards were forced below the hatches, and the vessel was taken. Then came the end. One by one the poor shrieking wretches were dragged up from below, and one by one they were butchered in cold blood, while Lolonoise stood upon the poop-deck and looked coldly down upon what was being done. Among the rest the negro was dragged upon the deck. He begged and implored that his life might be spared, promising to tell all that might be asked of him. Lolonoise questioned him, and when he had squeezed him dry, waved his hand coldly and the poor black went with the rest. Only one man was spared. Him he sent to the governor of Havana with a message that henceforth he would give no quarter to any Spaniard whom he might meet in arms, a message which was not an empty threat. The rise of Lolonoise was by no means rapid. He worked his way up by dint of hard labor and through much ill fortune. But by and by, after many reverses, the tide turned, and carried him with it from one success to another, without let or stray, to the bitter end. Cruising off Maracaibo, he captured a rich prize laden with a vast amount of plate and ready money, and there conceived the design of descending upon the powerful town of Maracaibo itself. Without loss of time, he gathered together five hundred picked scoundrels from Tortuga, and taking with him one Michael de Bosco as land captain, and two hundred more buccaneers whom he commanded, down he came into the Gulf of Venezuela and upon the doomed city like a blast of the plague. Leaving their vessels, the buccaneers made a land attack upon the fort that stood at the mouth of the inlet that led into Lake Maracaibo and guarded the city. The Spaniards held out well, and fought with all the might that Spaniards possess. But after a fight of three hours all was given up and the garrison fled, spreading terror and confusion before them. As many of the inhabitants of the city as could do so escaped in boats to Gibraltar, which lies to the southward, on the shores of Lake Maracaibo, at the distance of some forty leagues or more. Then the pirates marched into the town, and what followed may be conceived. It was a holocaust of lust, of passion, and of blood such as even the Spanish West Indies had never seen before. Houses and church were sacked until nothing was left but the bare walls. Men and women were tortured to compel them to disclose where more treasure lay hidden. Then, having wrenched all they could from Maracaibo, they entered the lake and descended upon Gibraltar, where the rest of the panic-stricken inhabitants were huddled together in a blind terror. The governor of Merida, a brave soldier who had served his king in Flanders, had gathered together a troop of eight hundred men, had fortified the town, and now lay in wait for the coming of the pirates. The pirates came all in good time, and then, in spite of the brave defense, 
Gibraltar also fell. Then followed a repetition of the scenes that had been enacted in Maracaibo for the past fifteen days, only here they remained for four horrible weeks, extorting money, money, ever money, from the poor poverty-stricken, pest-ridden souls crowded into that fever hole of a town. Then they left, but before they went they demanded still more money, ten thousand pieces of eight, as a ransom for the town, which otherwise should be given to the flames. There was some hesitation on the part of the Spaniards, some disposition to haggle, but there was no hesitation on the part of Lolonoise. The torch was set to the town as he had promised, whereupon the money was promptly paid, and the pirates were piteously begged to help quench the spreading flames. This they were pleased to do, but in spite of all their efforts, nearly half of the town was consumed. After that they returned to Maracaibo again, where they demanded a ransom of thirty thousand pieces of eight for the city. There was no haggling here, thanks to the fate of Gibraltar, only it was utterly impossible to raise that much money in all of the poverty-stricken region. But at last the matter was compromised, and the town was redeemed for twenty thousand pieces of eight and five hundred head of cattle, and tortured Maracaibo was quit of them. In the Ile de la Baca, the buccaneers shared among themselves two hundred and sixty thousand pieces of eight, besides jewels and bales of silk and linen, and miscellaneous plunder to a vast amount. Such was the one great deed of Lolonois. From that time his star steadily declined, for even nature seemed fighting against such a monster, until at last he died a miserable, nameless death at the hands of an unknown tribe of Indians upon the Isthmus of Darien. And now we come to the greatest of all the buccaneers, he who stands preeminent among them, and whose name even to this day is a charm to call up his deeds of daring, his dauntless courage, his truculent cruelty, and his insatiate and unappeasable lust for gold, Captain Henry Morgan, the bold Welshman, who brought buccaneering to the height and flower of its glory. Having sold himself, after the manner of the times, for his passage across the seas, he worked out his time of servitude at the Barbados. As soon as he had regained his liberty, he entered upon the trade of piracy, wherein he soon reached a position of considerable prominence. He was associated with Mansfeld at the time of the latter's descent upon St. Catherine's Isle, the importance of which spot, as a center of operations against the neighboring coasts, Morgan never lost sight of. The first attempt that Captain Henry Morgan ever made against any town in the Spanish Indies was the bold descent upon the city of Puerto del Principe in the island of Cuba, with a mere handful of men. It was a deed the boldness of which has never been outdone by any of a like nature not even the famous attack upon Panama itself. Thence they returned to their boats in the very face of the whole island of Cuba, aroused and determined upon their extermination. Not only did they make good their escape, but they brought away with them a vast amount of plunder, computed at three hundred thousand pieces of eight, besides five hundred head of cattle and many prisoners held for ransom. But when the division of all this wealth came to be made, lo! there were only fifty thousand pieces of eight to be found. What had become of the rest no man could tell but Captain Henry Morgan himself. Honesty among thieves was never an axiom with him. Rude, truculent, and dishonest as Captain Morgan was, he seems to have had a wonderful power of persuading the wild buccaneers under him to submit everything to his judgment, and to rely entirely upon his word. 
In spite of the vast sum of money that he had very evidently made away with, recruits poured in upon him, until his band was larger and better equipped than ever. And now it was determined that the plunder harvest was ripe at Portobello, and that city's doom was sealed. The town was defended by two strong castles, thoroughly manned, and officered by as gallant a soldier as ever carried Toledo's steel at his side. But strong castles and gallant soldiers weighed not a barleycorn with the buccaneers when their blood was stirred by the lust of gold. Landing at Puerto Naso, a town some ten leagues westward of Portobello, they marched to the latter town, and coming before the castle, boldly demanded its surrender. It was refused, whereupon Morgan threatened that no quarter should be given. Still, surrender was refused. And then the castle was attacked, and after a bitter struggle was captured. Morgan was as good as his word. Every man in the castle was shut in the guardroom. The match was set to the powder magazine, and soldiers, castle, and all were blown into the air, while through all the smoke and the dust the buccaneers poured into the town. Still, the governor held out in the other castle, and might have made good his defense, but that he was betrayed by the soldiers under him. Into the castle poured the howling buccaneers. But still, the governor fought on, with his wife and daughter clinging to his knees and beseeching him to surrender, and the blood from his wounded forehead trickling down over his white collar, until a merciful bullet put an end to the vain struggle. Here were enacted the old scenes. Everything plundered that could be taken, and then a ransom set upon the town itself. This time an honest, or an apparently honest, division was made of the spoils, which amounted to two hundred and fifty thousand pieces of eight, besides merchandise and jewels. The next towns to suffer were poor Maracaibo and Gibraltar, now just beginning to recover from the desolation wrought by Lolonoise. Once more both towns were plundered of every bale of merchandise and of every piaster, and once more both were ransomed until everything was squeezed from the wretched inhabitants. Here affairs were like to have taken a turn, for when Captain Morgan came up from Gibraltar he found three great men of war lying in the entrance to the lake awaiting his coming. Seeing that he was hemmed in in the narrow sheet of water, Captain Morgan was inclined to compromise matters, even offering to relinquish all the plunder he had gained if he were allowed to depart in peace. But no, the Spanish admiral would hear nothing of this. Having the pirates, as he thought, securely in his grasp, he would relinquish nothing, but would sweep them from the face of the sea once and forever. This was an unlucky determination for the Spaniards to reach, for instead of paralyzing the pirates with fear, as he expected it would do, it simply turned their mad courage into as mad desperation. A great vessel that they had taken with the town of Maracaibo was converted into a fire-ship, manned with logs of wood and Montera caps and sailor jackets, and filled with brimstone, pitch, and palm-leaves soaked in oil. Then, out of the lake, the pirates sailed to meet the Spaniards, the fire-ship leading the way, and bearing down directly upon the admiral's vessel. At the helm stood volunteers, the most desperate and the bravest of all the pirate gang, and at the ports stood the logs of wood and Montera caps. So they came up with the admiral, and grappled with his ship in spite of the thunder of all his great guns, and then the Spaniard saw, all too late, what his opponent really was. He tried to swing loose, but clouds of smoke and almost instantly a mass of roaring flames enveloped both vessels, and the admiral was lost. 
The second vessel, not wishing to wait for the coming of the pirates, bore down upon the fort, under the guns of which the cowardly crew sank her, and made the best of their way to the shore. The third vessel, not having an opportunity to escape, was taken by the pirates without the slightest resistance, and the passage from the lake was cleared. So the buccaneers sailed away, leaving Maracaibo and Gibraltar prostrate a second time. And now Captain Morgan determined to undertake another venture the like of which had never been equaled in all of the annals of buccaneering. This was nothing less than the descent upon and the capture of Panama, which was, next to Cartagena, perhaps the most powerful and the most strongly fortified city in the West Indies. In preparation for this venture, he obtained letters of mark from the governor of Jamaica, by virtue of which elastic commission he began immediately to gather around him all material necessary for the undertaking. When it became known abroad that the great Captain Morgan was about undertaking an adventure that was to eclipse all that was ever done before, great numbers came flocking to his standard, until he had gathered together an army of two thousand or more desperados and pirates wherewith to prosecute his adventure, albeit the venture itself was kept a total secret from everyone. Port Quillon, in the island of Hispaniola, over against the Ile de la Baca, was the place of muster and thither the motley band gathered from all quarters. Provisions had been plundered from the mainland wherever they could be obtained, and by the 24th of October, 1670, O.S., everything was in readiness. The island of St. Catherine, as it may be remembered, was at one time captured by Mansfeld, Morgan's master in his trade of piracy. It had been retaken by the Spaniards, and was now thoroughly fortified by them. Almost the first attempt that Morgan had made as a master pirate was the retaking of St. Catherine's Isle. In that undertaking he had failed. But now, as there was an absolute need of some such place as a base of operations, he determined that the place must be taken. And it was taken. The Spaniards, during the time of their possession, had fortified it most thoroughly and completely and had the governor thereof been as brave as he who met his death in the castle of Portobello, there might have been a different tale to tell. As it was, he surrendered it in a most cowardly fashion, merely stipulating that there should be a sham attack by the buccaneers, whereby his credit might be saved. And so St. Catherine was won. The next step to be taken was the capture of the castle of Chagres, which guarded the mouth of the river of that name, up which river the buccaneers would be compelled to transport their troops and provisions for the attack upon the city of Panama. This adventure was undertaken by four hundred picked men under command of Captain Morgan himself. The castle of Chagres, known as San Lorenzo by the Spaniards, stood upon the top of an abrupt rock at the mouth of the river, and was one of the strongest fortresses for its size in all of the West Indies. This stronghold Morgan must have, if he ever hoped, to win Panama. The attack of the castle and the defense of it were equally fierce, bloody, and desperate. Again and again the buccaneers assaulted, and again and again they were beaten back. So the morning came, and it seemed as though the pirates had been baffled this time. But just at this juncture the thatch of palm leaves on the roofs of some of the buildings inside the fortifications took fire. A conflagration followed which caused the explosion of one of the magazines, and in the paralysis of terror that followed the pirates forced their way into the fortifications, and the castle was won. Most of the Spaniards flung themselves from the castle walls into the river or upon the rocks beneath, preferring death to capture and possible torture. 
Many who were left were put to the sword, and some few were spared and held as prisoners. So fell the castle of Chagres, and nothing now lay between the buccaneers and the city of Panama but the intervening and trackless forests. And now the name of the town whose doom was sealed was no secret. Up the river of Chagres went Captain Henry Morgan and twelve hundred men, packed closely in their canoes. They never stopped, saving now and then to rest their stiffened legs, until they had come to a place known as Cruz de San Juan Gallego, where they were compelled to leave their boats on account of the shallowness of the water. Leaving a guard of one hundred and sixty men to protect their boats as a place of refuge in case they should be worsted before Panama, they turned and plunged into the wilderness before them. There a more powerful foe awaited them than a host of Spaniards with match-powder and lead—starvation. They met but little or no opposition in their progress. But wherever they turned they found every fiber of meat, every grain of maize, every ounce of bread or meal, swept away or destroyed utterly before them. Even when the buccaneers had successfully overcome an ambuscade or an attack, and had sent the Spaniards flying, the fugitives took the time to strip their dead comrades of every grain of food in their leathern sacks, leaving nothing but the empty bags. Says the narrator of these events, himself one of the expedition, they afterward fell to eating those leathern bags, as affording something to the ferment of their stomachs. Ten days they struggled through this bitter privation, doggedly forcing their way onward, faint with hunger and haggard with weakness and fever. Then, from the high hill and over the tops of the forest trees they saw the steeples of Panama, and nothing remained between them and their goal but the fighting of four Spaniards to every one of them, a simple thing which they had done over and over again. Down they poured upon Panama, and out came the Spaniards to meet them, four hundred horse, two thousand five hundred foot, and two thousand wild bulls which had been herded together to be driven over the buccaneers so their ranks might be disordered and broken. The buccaneers were only eight hundred strong. The others had either fallen in battle or had dropped along the dreary pathway through the wilderness. But in the space of two hours the Spaniards were flying madly over the plain, minus six hundred who lay dead or dying behind them. As for the bulls, as many of them as were shot served as food there and then for the half-famished pirates, for the buccaneers were never more at home than in the slaughter of cattle. Then they marched toward the city. Three hours more fighting, and they were in the streets, howling, yelling, plundering, gorging, dram-drinking, and giving full vent to all the vile and nameless lusts that burned in their hearts like a hell of fire. And now followed the usual sequence of events—rapine, cruelty, and extortion. Only this time there was no town to ransom, for Morgan had given orders that it should be destroyed. The torch was set to it and Panama, one of the greatest cities in the New World, was swept from the face of the earth. Why the deed was done no man but Morgan could tell. Perhaps it was that all the secret hiding-places for treasure might be brought to light. But whatever the reason was, it lay hidden in the breast of the great buccaneer himself. For three weeks Morgan and his men abode in this dreadful place, and they marched away with one hundred and seventy-five beasts of burden loaded with treasures of gold and silver and jewels, besides great quantities of merchandise, and six hundred prisoners held for ransom. Whatever became of all that vast wealth, and what it amounted to, no man but Morgan ever knew, 
for when a division was made it was found that there was only two hundred pieces of eight to each man. When this dividend was declared, a howl of execration went up, under which even Captain Henry Morgan quailed. At night he and four other commanders slipped their cables and ran out to sea, and it was said that these divided the greater part of the booty among themselves. But the wealth plundered at Panama could hardly have fallen short of a million and a half dollars. Computing it at this reasonable figure, the various prizes won by Henry Morgan in the West Indies would stand as follows. Panama, one and a half million dollars. Portobello, eight hundred thousand dollars. Puerto del Principe, seven hundred thousand dollars. Maracaibo and Gibraltar, four hundred thousand dollars. Various piracies, two hundred fifty thousand dollars, making a grand total of three million six hundred fifty thousand dollars as the vast harvest of plunder. With this fabulous wealth, wrenched from the Spaniards by means of the rack and the cord, and pilfered from his companions by the meanest of thieving, Captain Henry Morgan retired from business, honored of all, rendered famous by his deeds, knighted by the good King Charles the Second, and finally appointed governor of the rich island of Jamaica. Other buccaneers followed him. Campeche was taken and sacked, and even Cartagena itself fell. But with Henry Morgan culminated the glory of the buccaneers, and from that time they declined in power and wealth and wickedness until they were finally swept away. End of Part 1 of Howard Pyle's Book of Pirates Read by Epistomalus, Cupertino, California, epcomm.com slash school.